Have you ever suffered from low back pain? If so, you're going to want to listen to this episode of the Concast. practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. And welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 52 of the Concast. And for this episode, I'd like to discuss my most requested topic of the podcast thus far. And everybody's been encouraging me to do this episode. And for some reason, I'm not really sure why. Up until this point, I haven't shot an episode on this topic because it is one of the more popular topics in health and injuries. And that topic is the topic of low back pain or sore backs. And the research would suggest that it is very, very common in society. In fact, one in three people will suffer a sore back or a episode of back pain throughout the course of their life many of which is considered to be persistent back pain, which is back pain lasting three months or more. It also seems that having a sore back creates a substantial amount of apprehension in people that suffer from back pain, even more so than some of the other areas of the body, things like the hip, the knee, and the ankle. It appears that when people have a sore back or a sore neck, it leads to a lot of apprehension, and this might be for a number of reasons which we'll discuss throughout the podcast. Maybe the first reason is mechanism of injury. What we understand about back pain now is that there doesn't seem to be a specific mechanism of injury in a lot of these cases where we can say X has caused Y. And while people are always looking to find out a specific reason as to why something is sore, this might perpetuate some of that apprehension. Another scenario might be that the mechanism of injury that causes back pain is often something that is seemingly innocuous. A person will bend forward to tie their shoes or pick something up off of the floor and they'll be met with this substantial amount of pain. Now, I think that we need to understand that this probably wasn't the particular event that caused the sore back. However, many people associate it with the event that was the onset of their pain and discomfort. This brings about feelings of maybe I wasn't strong enough. Why did this happen in a way that was so seemingly uneventful? And so these are some of the circumstances that might lead to this apprehension that people have furthering potentially the recovery process. Now, as we see more and more research come about with respect to back pain, and there is more research than ever before, we understand a few things. We understand that first and foremost, it's very difficult to always lay down a specific cause of the pain. We also understand that now more than ever, we need to be handling each case specifically to the patient in front of us. Now, one of the big topics with respect to back pain is surgery, and that might be one of these causes as to why when people get a sore back, they are very, very apprehensive. 
I think before we get into today's topic, we should outline that roughly 1% or 1% to 3%, depending upon what studies you look at, of all back pain suffered worldwide would end up in a surgery. Now, why is this important? This is typically no different than the majority of other areas of the body, things like shoulder pain or ankle pain, neck pain. Why I think this is important to note is that many people know someone that has had a back pain surgery, and so when they get a sore back, they may automatically think, oh no, am I doomed for surgery? Is this going to be a surgical case? Am I going to end up on a surgical table? And so we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I think it's important to note that the vast, vast majority of low back pain or sore backs will resolve with complementary interventions and or medical treatment. So let's start our discussion off around factors that might influence back pain or sore backs. And one of the interesting things in the research that despite all of the research that we do, we cannot lay this down, and that might be part of the frustration is that we can't clearly say that X will increase your likelihood or be a further predictor that you might suffer from back pain. Now, there are a few things that we have in mind that we think might be predictors of pain, but these are no different than general predictors of injury, illness, or disease. Things like age, overall health profile and activity level, things like stress levels or stress management, And these seem to be predictors of health and wellness at large, not necessarily a predictor of that X causes Y. So for example, being overweight would increase your likelihood of shoulder pain or back pain. One interesting thing in the research is that with back pain, there does seem to be some correlation with if you have an acute episode of back pain, you might have had a prior back pain episode of less significance within the last year. And that's one of the things that I will often find in my health history when I'm discussing with a patient, you've had this acute episode of back pain. What's happened in the last year? Oh, roughly six months ago, I had this bout of back pain and it lasted maybe a day and then it went away. It wasn't anything substantial. And now I'm dealing with this more acute substantial episode. Now, just because we find that in the health history, again, it's not a predictor that certain people or certain populations will be more at risk of developing back pain versus others. As a result of all of this muddiness in the research and non-specificity in the research, research has really collectively come up with, and this is not solely related to back pain, but any type of injury, what are known as general practice guidelines. And in the field of back pain and musculoskeletal medicine, what those practice guidelines generally say with reference to how to manage an injury, is an injury should really be patient-centered and patient-focused. So rather than treating back pain, for example, we are treating patient in front of us that has happened to be going through this episode of a sore back. This allows us to take into account all of the potential factors that may influence having a sore back from the onset and allow us to create a full specific tailored management program towards the patient that's in front of us. And so what we're going to discuss in today's podcast is how I see myself managing patients with low back pain based on some of the research that's out there specific to these things known as practice guidelines. 
So the first thing that we always want to consider is this idea of a sore back or non-specific low back pain, which it's often referred to as, is a process of exclusion. And what that means is looking at things or excluding things that may be the source of their back pain as we go from the onset of discussing how a patient is feeling from the time they get into our office. And the first thing that we always want to consider with any injury is something known as a red flag. And red flags are flags or signs that there might be something more substantial going on in the body. So we think about disease processes, for example, that might be referring pain into the low back. So some things that come to mind might be kidney disease. Maybe somebody has a kidney infection. Maybe they have a kidney stone. These are very commonly referred into the low back. There may be something like an arthritic condition. And by arthritic condition, I mean rheumatoid or rheumatic arthritic conditions, things that are more related to an exaggerated immune system response. And something that comes to mind is something known as ankylosing spondylitis, which is a condition that starts in the low back and spine and is very closely related to rheumatoid arthritis. Now, this is not the same as osteoarthritis, and I think we should take some time to discuss osteoarthritis in general. In the back, we used to refer to osteoarthritis as degenerative disc disease. Now, that sounds very scary and substantial. And what we have learned since is that osteoarthritis is a byproduct of aging and wear and tear of the body as the body ages, and this is a normal process. Now, this does not mean that osteoarthritis might not be painful. However, there are plenty of circumstances, and I've seen them myself in clinic, where patients will have osteoarthritis and they will be fully functional. So we can't definitively say that if there is an image, say an x-ray or an MRI, that shows osteoarthritis, that that is a predictor of their pain. And I think that's really, really important because people see this on their images and they get apprehensive about it. Now, what are some other red flags that can occur in the low back? There might be a presence of a fracture. So maybe there is a specific mechanism of injury where somebody was lifting, let's say, heavy weights. They were doing a squat and they found that they hurt themselves during that squat while under substantial load. That might be a predictor or it might make me think that there might be a fracture. There might be circumstances where I suspect that I might be dealing with somebody of lower bone density. Maybe they have osteoporosis or osteopenia, and that might lead me to believe that they might be more at risk of developing a fracture. And then there are stress fractures, and stress fractures typically happen due to repetition under load over time. So I might see an athlete in a particular sport where extension and rotation is heavily involved. And this can lead to stress fractures or fractures of certain areas of the spine that are known as spondylolithesis. These happen in sports like volleyball or overhead lifting in, in circumstances of Olympic lifting. And then lastly, I always want to consider more sinister pathologies, things like cancers. And I'm always questioning patients about extreme weight loss, unrelenting pain in particular, being awoken at night by pain or things like night sweats, as well as any other accompanied symptoms that might be concerning for me at that time. Now, I don't discuss red flags to create apprehension. I'm simply taking you through the process 
of what I do in my clinic. As always, bear in mind that the information that I'm discussing is more for interest's sake and hopefully can give you some tips and tricks. This is not to replace any of the primary healthcare practitioners that you're seeing, but we do take this approach from a healthcare perspective to ensure that everybody is safe before moving on to step two. Now, I think it's also important to discuss when discussing back pain, discs, because discs are a very popular topic. We hear it a lot where a disc may be herniated or a disc may be put out of place. And the reality of it is, is that this doesn't necessarily happen in the way that we had originally thought. Now, specific to disc injuries, there are some red flags that we want to take into consideration. With respect to a disc being injured and creating a circumstance that might need a little bit more immediate attention or emergency evaluation or care, we are concerned about things like saddle anesthesia or paresthesia. So what do those words mean, anesthesia? Anesthesia or anesthetic means that I can't feel the area at all. Paresthesia, on the other hand, is an alteration in sensation, particularly in the form of numbness and tingling. Now, the saddle area is just that, where you would sit on the saddle of a horse, which is the underside of the pelvis just behind the genitals. So if there's a loss of sensation there or an alteration of sensation there with low back pain, that might be a little bit more concerning for us. The other thing to consider as a red flag for low back pain is a drop attack, which essentially means you're falling without any cause. We also want to consider function in particular of the legs and whether you've lost function of the legs or any area of the lower limb, for example, the ankle or the feet. And this is commonly referred to as a drop foot. You might find that as you're walking, your foot is slapping on the ground, or you might find that as you're trying to step up the stairs, your feet don't quite clear the steps and therefore you might trip and fall. We also want to consider bowel and bladder function. So we want to have a discussion around whether you have become incontinent, whether you've lost bowel or bladder function. And the reason that we discuss all of these specific to discs is that if any of these are present, it might warrant a little bit more of an emergency evaluation. Now, these are circumstances where we might have to send you back to your family doctor who may evaluate it themselves, or they may send you to the emergency room depending upon the symptoms that you are feeling and they might order an x-ray. And radiology and back pain is a hot topic. And the discussion is, when should people get an x-ray or an MRI? And patients will often ask me this in the clinic. Connor, I have back pain. Do I need an MRI or do I need an x-ray? And the reality of it is, is that based on red flags and screening for red flags, if there are any of these suspected red flags, which I've just discussed, then a image will usually be ordered to make sure that the patient is safe. However, outside of these red flags, the reason why x-rays and MRIs are becoming less ordered is that they don't typically change our course of care. And what that means is that outside of evaluating for a red flag, we are generally going to manage cases of sore backs in very similar ways regardless of the particular suspected causes that are generating a patient's pain or discomfort. So why don't we start there? Why don't we start with when we're 
looking or thinking about a sore back, what might cause back pain or this experience of back pain? And the way that I think about it first is, are there any local biological causes of pain? And so what do I mean by biological causes of pain? Are there areas within the low back that might be injured or inflamed, or there's some sort of injury process going on that might be contributing to the discomfort that you're feeling? For example, is there a specific activity that you're doing that recreates your pain, or do you just have generalized back pain? Now, some things to come to mind that might be injured are joints in the low back, and these joints might be injured because of a more advanced osteoarthritic process. The joints might be irritated because they've gone through too much compression. There might be a sprain in the area that might be causing some irritation or a muscle that's been injured in the area. Now, at times with respect to sore backs, nerves might also be irritated and nerves can be irritated very close to the spine and this is at an area known as the nerve root, which at each level of the spine, you have these nerve roots that exit to become larger nerves and ultimately feed areas of the back, the trunk, and the legs. Or you can have irritation to peripheral nerves, which are after these nerve roots form these larger nerves, outside of the back in the tissue and the muscles of the back, you have these larger peripheral nerves. And when we discuss back pain, some common nerves that come to mind are the clunial nerves are often discussed, and sometimes these clunial nerves can get irritated and create a little bit of back discomfort as well. Lastly, we should also consider within the back something known as stenotic injuries, and stenosis means a narrowing. So as I had mentioned about those nerves, those nerves come out of little holes, and sometimes those holes get narrowed. Uh, they may narrow because of a little osteoarthritic growth, or even the central canal of the spinal cord can narrow, and this is known as central canal stenosis. Now, it's important to note that these aren't all of the biological or potential biological causes of back pain, but some of them. And when we're thinking about, is this tissue injured, these are some of the things that we take into account. Now, we've all heard the word disc herniation. What does disc herniation mean? So there are discs between the bones of the spine. I think what I would like to first discuss is the fact that discs don't fall out of place and need to be put back in by us as practitioners, uh, nor do spinal joints fall out of place and require to be put back in place by practitioners. Now, can discs be the primary source of your back pain? The answer is there are circumstances where we believe that this might be more of the case. Now, there are things, again, taking the patient into account in front of us that might lead us to believe this. And we first look at overall health profile. We look at the age and the health of the patient. We want to consider factors like activity level. We know that discs get nutrients through something called imbibition and as well as an area known as the end plate of the disc and imbibition is nutrients through pressure change. Pressure change is often dictated by activity. There is also research regarding other reasons why discs might influence a sore back and these are things like bacterial infection within the disc, a small tear within the disc, 
or what's known as a neurovascular ingrowth within the disc, which means there might be new small nerves or blood vessels that grow into the disc, which can make them painful. Now, in saying all of this, if you have an image that says that you have a disc protrusion or a small herniation, we cannot say that this is the primary cause of your back pain. Often, we will still do a physical exam, and we will still try to attempt to understand whether the disc is contributing to the pain that you're feeling. The other thing that we need to understand is that x-rays and MRIs are static images. They aren't giving us a clear-cut image of what's happening in the body. They're often done in isolated standing or in a lying position on your stomach or on your back. And therefore, we don't really know what's happening when somebody's moving, twisting, bending, etc. We also know that everybody's anatomy is a little bit more variable. So my spine is a little bit different than yours. And my spine might allow for more space for discs to move around or nerves to move around or soft tissue to move around as I move. And so just because we see something on an image, we can't translate that into movement, nor can we predict that against the particular symptoms that you are feeling at that time. We do know that there are plenty of people for all pain in the body that have some of these findings that are pain-free. We know that there are people that have osteoarthritis and that are pain-free, whether that's in the back or in the knee. And so again, we have a hard time making distinct conclusions that just because you have something showing up on an image, that is the source of your pain. And further to that, as I said earlier, that is probably not going to change the course of outcome for your treatment outside of if you have any of those red flag symptoms I discussed at the top of the podcast. So those are some of the biological or potential biological causes of pain. Next, let's talk about some of the non-biological causes of pain. And I think the first and maybe the most important is something known as iatrogenic causes of pain. Iatrogenic causes are medical interventions that create a side effect. So if we look at, for example, medications, medications have iatrogenic side effects. I might take a medication and that might cause my hands to be numb and tingling while treating the particular condition that I'm taking the medication for. Now, with respect to back pain, there's some large discussion around iatrogenic factors to back pain. This is largely related to the language that practitioners use or the over-requisition of imaging in our field. So, for example, ordering x-rays and ultrasounds when we haven't done a thorough physical exam. The example that I'll give you is a patient interaction with somebody that might have an x-ray that might show some low-grade osteoarthritis. Now, I could discuss it in the light that I've just done here, where I talk about the general wear and tear and aging of tissue, and the fact that there is no research that would suggest that there is a clear-cut relationship between imaging findings and pain. Or that person could hand me their x-ray and I could grimace, I could make a face that's very concerning, and I could say, oh, this is the worst back that I've ever seen. This leads to a very different patient experience based on those two interactions. 
We also have people using fear as a way of marketing to patients in our industry. The example that I'll give you is using imaging to better market to a particular patient. So the practitioner might take an x-ray and they may say then to the patient, oh, your back is looking as though it might be heading in rough shape and you will need to see me three or four times a week for the next year. Otherwise, your spine or your back will end up like that of a 70-year-old. Now, it's important to note that this is not grounded in any research. There is no supporting evidence to suggest that seeing a practitioner for a preventative measure would prevent your spine from doing anything, nor is there any evidence to suggest what that practitioner is saying, that three years from now, five years from now, your spine will be that of a 70-year-old. We cannot predict disease processes solely on an image without any other reason for a disease to advance. So what do I mean by that? If there's no progressive disease that's been diagnosed, we can't say you are going to get worse in 20 years. So that goes for back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain. And if you come across somebody that's using this language for you, it is typically used in an attempt to get you to come for more visits. If you are interacting with somebody and they're using this language, then my suggestion is try and get a second opinion and discuss this with maybe some friends or colleagues that might be able to maybe refer you to a different practitioner. Because again, there is no circumstance where I could look at an x-ray and say, if you don't see me or you don't get this done, your spine is going to become worse or your back pain is going to become worse. So that is iatrogenic causes. Now, what are some other non-biological causes? These typically relate to things like psychosocial factors. So there are a few theories out there. One of them is protective tone. And we know that this might happen for a number of reasons. Sometimes it might be related to apprehension. People with sore backs are very apprehensive about bending forward or tying their shoes, especially if it's in the same circumstance that they hurt themselves in. We know that the nervous system can react to this type of stress. And so often we might get an increase in tone in an area which might bring about an experience of tightness or discomfort. So this might happen again because of apprehension. There's some theories that this might happen because the area is overworked or other areas aren't moving as well. This brings about some other common myths that are often discussed with respect to back pain. Things like core stability and the idea that your core isn't on or it's turned off and it needs to be turned on. And I, as the practitioner, would help you do that. Or your glutes are not firing. We hear those terms a lot. Your hip muscles are not firing. This is simply a myth and these things do not happen. So if you're hearing terms like this, it gives you as the patient the perception that you are broken and these things need to be switched back on magically. And this typically isn't really the case. There's no evidence to support that theory. Other potential non-biological causes of pain are Things like maybe the nervous system isn't quite confident for you to have the strength to move in a particular position. Again, this has a lot to do with apprehension and maybe there are other factors involved. And this can perpetuate 
a lot of withdrawal from somebody that has a sore back or is going through acute or chronic back pain, we might see people withdraw from activities. So they might stop weight training. They might stop going to play sports. As a result of that, that might decrease their health profile. And that kind of starts this cycle, this injury cycle that patients often get caught up in where they withdraw from sports and they their health profile further declines and their back pain increases as a result of that. And so these are some of the circumstances by which we believe that backs can be sore, some of the biological causes and the non-biological causes. Again, we can't really say one is driving sore backs more than the other. So what next? Once we have tried to determine what are these causes, how would we help a person? Or how could you help yourself? So first and foremost, really the degree of pain is important because we know that breaking a pain cycle is an important part of an injury. And often when somebody is in pain, they have a hard time sleeping and we know sleep is an integral part of recovery. So let's say somebody is in an acute episode of back pain. So all of these red flags have been ruled out, which we've discussed. And often what I will start with is this sort of first aid period where we are trying to decrease your pain. And how might I do that? So at times there are relief positions. So for example, a relief position might be lying on the floor on your back with your hips and legs flexed to 90 degrees and your lower legs resting on a couch. And if you can be in that position for 30 minutes pain-free or even an hour pain-free, I may suggest that you just lie there and read a book or chill out and that breaks your pain cycle, which ultimately improves potential outcomes for healing. I may educate you, particularly with sleeping on positions that might give you relief or comfort. I may look at modifying your activities of daily living, maybe removing some training, reducing training. If you're an athlete, I might show you how to lift something differently if it's more comfortable for you or do your laundry or pick up your children in a different way that might not be as painful. And what this does is it starts to allow the nervous system to adapt and move away from the soreness, hopefully breaking that pain cycle. Breaking this cycle early is of utmost importance. It allows you to, again, restore sleep patterns, improve your overall mood, improve your wellness, and hopefully move you back towards a pre-injury status. So in the acute phase, it's all about trying to break the pain cycle. And this is typically done with education, which the education will look very similar to what I've just discussed in the first half of the podcast about the potential drivers for what's going on with the sore back. Some of that might be done really specifically with a patient. Some of it might be really general. Again, it depends on the patient that's in front of me. And then hopefully as we start to give you these relief positions and the pain subsides, we move more into progressive management and moving you back towards your pre-injury status. Now, there's usually crossover between the acute phase and this sort of management phase. Now, as we progress through the management phase, out of the acute phase, and we've started to get your discomfort and soreness a little bit more under control, 
we move into things like sub-symptom threshold exercise. So we might return you back to some of those activities that we maybe removed early in the process, or we might move you into activities that aren't causing you as much soreness. So maybe you're a runner and we move you to walking. Maybe you are a cyclist and we move you to swimming. Maybe we have you continue to run, but we have you run less. Some of these modifiers might be specific and some of them may be nonspecific. We might just say, just go for a walk. And it's really, again, dependent upon the patient that's in front of us and what's going on in that particular circumstance. Now, might I give exercises? I certainly may. And this depends on who I'm seeing and their willingness to perform the exercises. So we talked earlier about core stability and whether the core is turned on and off. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not going to give core stability exercises. My theory on core stability exercises is that core stability exercises, so something like being on all fours and moving your arms and legs or being on your back and moving your arms and legs, teaches this great thing in the body known as disassociation. And my theory is that when we get sore, we will guard a lot of the time and we will move as one large unit rather than moving our arms and legs necessarily independent from our trunk. And so I love using core stability exercise to create disassociation again, allow someone in a safe position to move the arms and legs independently of the trunk. And for me, I've found that this then translates well into what you're doing in your activities of daily living. I'll also look at very basic patterns of everyday living, things like pushing, pulling, lunging, squatting, hinging, or bending forward and touching your toes. Sometimes I'll teach these patterns specifically, sometimes I will not. Typically, in the first few days or weeks, I will teach these patterns without load. I may then add load after the fact, or the pain has resolved to a point where load is not necessary. Sometimes I'm teaching very simple things like walking and carrying something heavy, which allows you to develop a bit of strength and endurance, and then carry that over to, again, your activities of daily living. If somebody is a more active individual, that I might be continually monitoring their training as well and making modifications to their training program or schedule. From there, we hope that you get more and more functional and continue to return towards that pre-injury status. The other common question I get a lot with respect to back pain and sore backs is what about things like manual therapy, things like massage therapy, chiropractic care, and physical therapy? What specifically should I be getting done or what specific type of technique or treatment? The reality of it again is that in the research, there is not one specific technique that will be a cure-all for back pain. The research would suggest that some of this stuff works, but not all of the time. So we can't say chiropractic care will cure all sore backs or massage therapy will cure all sore backs. And so really the care that you should seek out is from somebody that is a trusted practitioner and work in collaboration with you to help you get back to your pre-injury status. So does nerve flossing work? Yes, it does. Does chiropractic care work? Yes, it does. Does acupuncture work? Yes, it does. Are there circumstances where this is not going to work? There certainly are. Many times I will suggest that a person see a combination of therapists 
This will allow for different perspectives, collaboration between therapists, and often leads to great results as well. But I think the important distinction here is to, again, if people are making a claim that there is a one fix-all for back pain, it's simply not true. All techniques, generally speaking, that make you feel good help facilitate the process. These work as an adjunct to the other things that I've discussed, the patient education being of utmost importance, the management of activities of daily living, and that sub-symptom threshold exercise. These together make a very, very thorough treatment plan and management of a sore back. Now, as I've said on other podcasts, I would love to think that complementary healthcare fixes everything, but it just simply does not. So there are cases where medical interventions will be used to manage back pain as well, and sometimes these are needed, in particular, if the complementary therapies cannot break the pain cycle. Now, typically with these interventions, the invasiveness of them will progress from least invasive to most invasive. More or less invasive therapeutics include things like medication, maybe anti-inflammatories or neurologically driven drugs, drugs that you may have heard of like gabapentin or Lyrica, pain-relieving drugs or injections if somebody is in the emergency room because the pain is so substantial. You might have heard of shots like Tordal. These are all generally designed to either address biologic causes of pain or reduce and break the pain cycle. Progressing from there, if these don't work, a practitioner may give you a shot. This might include a steroid shot or a biologic shot. Some of the shots that are out there might include PRP or prolotherapy. There may even be anesthetics that are given short-term or long-term acting anesthetics to attempt to break the pain cycle. Ultimately, if there has been a thorough management of the injury and there is still no resolution and the injury is continuing to progress, then yes, there are surgical interventions or procedures that are done. These might include things like disectomies or removal of a part of the disc, rhizotomies, which address nerves and other low back surgeries. It's important that if you have gone through this, that you still maintain some degree of rehabilitation because, again, we know that surgery isn't a fix-all for back pain. And this has also been well-documented. Now, in saying that, remember what I discussed at the top of the podcast, which is of all back pain, 1%-ish is going to result in a surgical procedure. If I think about all of the back pain that I've seen in my 14 years of practice, I think I could count on maybe one hand or maybe two the number of patients that I've known that have had to go in for a surgical procedure. So that is is good news. The vast majority of back pain that we've discussed throughout this podcast is going to be managed well with time, with interventions from somebody that is going to work with you in a collaborative process and give you the tools to help return you to your pre-injury status. The reality of it is, is that backs get sore like every other area of the body. The ankle, the knee, the hip, the wrist, backs and necks get sore. However, in my experience, the apprehension surrounding these seems to be a little bit more. This might be the way that the medical system has presented back pain in the past, 
this might be because some of the mechanisms of injury that cause back pain. This might be because of the discussions with friends that know somebody that's had surgery. This might be due to simply the degree of discomfort that you have experienced. It might be because of how debilitating the pain can be and how it disrupts so much of your life from a social circumstance. We really don't know. However, I hope that some of the education in this podcast has brought light to that. I will close with this in saying that, again, the majority of back pain resolves with complementary interventions and time. Remember that nothing needs to be put back in place by a practitioner. Nothing is out of place. The spine is strong. The spine is resilient. And the majority of time, you will get back to your pre-injury status. Now, this doesn't mean to say that there aren't serious circumstances of back pain. This isn't to discount any of the pain and discomfort that you're going through. It's that this is where the current evidence sits with regards to managing sore backs. Have a good patient interview, rule out red flags, try and determine the cause of the pain. If it is specific, if it's non-specific, give you strategies to move around it and gradually return you back to your pre-injury status over time with interventions of exercise and lifestyle modifications when applicable. And there are certainly circumstances where these strategies can be very, very effective. And there are other circumstances where we need more medical interventions. I do hope that this podcast has offered some light into people that are going through back pain or if you've gone through back pain yourself. My question for you is, have you gone through this? Again, one in three people are going to have a sore back. For you, what helped you get back to your pre-injury status? Was it a particular set of exercises? Was it education? Was it returning to strength training? Was it getting some treatment? I'd love to know in the comments below. Otherwise, folks, we'll leave it at that for today. As always, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one.